0: Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, a non-12-step online program for people who want to ameliorate addiction-related problems in their lives, or who want to help friends or loved ones gain control of their lives. One of many ways that we in the Life Process Program help people move away from their addictions and toward a more positive trajectory is by helping them create a biography for themselves a feature of the program that we call the Life Story. The Life Story is like a journal in which a person tracks their development or the development of their family member or child, and they do this through the course of the program. We break this task down into manageable parts aligned with the work a person's doing in the program. The Life Process Program takes clients through a staged review of their stories, focusing first on mistakes, continuing to how they might have acted differently to avoid these pitfalls, but then to reconceiving their life stories, to focus on positives, and finally to projecting their life stories forward into a positive, life-fulfilling narrative. Eventually we'll say, reframe your past. Instead of recalling only your traumas and your setbacks, let's start to put a positive spin on these events by doing the following. Recount your successes in overcoming previous problems. Review your strengths. Consider the skills you'd like to learn and develop, Avoid labeling. Eschew self disparaging identities, like the term addict itself, and begin engaging with life. Today I'm speaking with the creator of the program, Dr. Stanton Peel, about why we believe constructing such a narrative is important in leaving an addiction behind, and why thinking about life stories is especially important for children coming into their own. To get a sense of the program and what it's all about, go to the Life Process Program. for free multimedia resources about addiction. And if you find you're becoming interested, you can schedule a free confidential consultation with a trained Life Process Program coach. Again, that's lifeprocessprogram.com. Now enjoy Episode 2 of the LPP Podcast, Your Life Story. Zach Rhodes, welcome to the LPP Podcast. As I mentioned in the intro, LPP is the Life Process Program. This is the second episode of the LPP Podcast series, and I'm here with the creator of the Life Process Program, psychologist and author, Dr. Stanton Peel. Good morning, Stanton.
1: Good morning, Zach.
0: Today, we're going to talk about the power of stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and about the world. We'll talk about possible consequences of telling generally negative and pessimistic stories about our lives versus telling ourselves equally realistic stories about who we are, but with a positive and optimistic outlook on the future. And with the understanding that everything I'm saying could sound abstract to any given listener, we'll talk about what it means to think about our own existence as a narrative which we can control. Uh, But first, just a potted description of the Life Process Programme, And maybe you could fill in any gaps you think I leave, Stanton. The Life Process Program is an online program for people who want to ameliorate addiction-related problems in their lives or help friends or loved ones gain control of their lives. But actually, I think that's only one half of what the program's about. Because LPP is not designed just to spot a problem and then fix it, getting back to baseline. It could be that, if that's what somebody wants. But it's designed to help people build on their strengths... And help people come to their own conclusions about what they want and how to make improvements in their lives into the indefinite future. Stanton, do you want to elaborate on that before we dive into the topic today?
1: We do talk about stories you tell yourself. An important component in the program is creating your own biography. We start with the memoir that you might write. Many of the people we have as clients emphasize their problems. And then we segue into a more positive version of that same life history. And then we project into the future a different way of talking about themselves. And I believe we're going to get more into that in a future episode. But I believe today we're going to emphasize the stories that we tell our children or the stories the children are told, which builds, of course, on your work um, and the work of a colleague of ours, uh, Dr. Noriko Martinez, who's a family therapist in Chicago. Noriko has helped us to write an appendix for our forthcoming book, which is a parent's guide, a manual for dealing with potential addiction in children. I, I, I think we're going to focus today on that parent, children, and other helper children role.
0: Will you talk about the feature of the Life Process Program that you built called the Life Story? What's the meaning of these stories and, and what's their place in the Life Process Program?
1: Well, It's based on my underlying philosophy in the Life Process Program. We're in an era where we focus so much on genetic and other biologically-based determinants of addiction, which I think is entirely the wrong focus. First of all, we greatly overstate those, and we've done podcasts about genetic contributions in addiction. But moreover, even those who claim these biological and pharmacological determinants of addiction themselves focus on cognitive behavioral techniques like motivational interviewing. And for example, when um, HBO did a series on addiction, which was strongly directed by Nora Volko, the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the primary, really the only treatment that they actually recommended was CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, and motivational interviewing. Hmm. And it's hard to avoid the realization that the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about ourselves in relationship to drugs and alcohol or other addictions is the critical component in determining how we'll deal with them and succeed at coming to grips with them and overcoming addictions. A book I wrote called The Meaning of Addiction is subtitled Compulsive Experience and Its Interpretation. And it emphasizes how widely variable and how changeable conceptions of drugs and their effects are both society-wide and in terms of the individual and their view of themselves. So that's our point of embarking with an individual. How are they seeing themselves in relationship to their addiction, the addictive substance or other activity? And how can we rearrange that conception?
0: So there is something that you implied there, which is that to help people solve problems or even make their way in life, They have to change their own character to an extent that they can put a dent in the problem. Uh, Sometimes as a counselor, helper, whatever you may be in another person's life, we can give them hints about what might be best to do. But really, you've got to be careful with that because there's an element of theft uh, and a person's identity that's associated with that. And nowhere is that any more clear than the way that we talk about drugs in society and especially... The way we talk about drugs and addictions, there's an extra layer involved when we're working with kids, namely the complexity of development, and that it doesn't have to be so complex if we just nest um, our own stories within each of those stages. Uh, do you think that's worthwhile for me to just go over?
1: Please go ahead. Uh, I, I think that's a good, the fundamental framework in dealing with children that we that we'll uh, approach it from.
0: All right. So before we even get into the drugs and addiction part, just generally speaking. Adults, you know, we wrote this guide that's for parents, but really it's adults and parents and other guardians or anyone who's helping a child or has an interest in a child's life. We help children create stories about their lives, about their own experiences. Adults help children process and make sense of shared experiences. And adults at our best hand down values and act as a proxy for whatever kids might be missing in their developmental stages at the time. As adults, our obligation is to allow kids to pursue curiosity in a way that's safe and constructive and interesting and meaningful and in developmentally appropriate ways. So when adults are at our best, we're teaching kids how to teach themselves. We know a developed adult can orient himself or we expect a developed adult to be able to orient himself or herself towards a grand goal, and then they can narrow their frame and create smaller goals in a shorter time period, live in the moment, but also interpret what's happening now or what has happened in the past as a way to construct an outlook for the future. Well, you mentioned you and I wrote a book called Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy. That will be available in May of this year. And you also mentioned we included an appendix written largely by our colleague, Dr. Norico Martinez where she broke down the ages and stages of human development in this really clear and digestible way, including what we can do as parents and teachers and counselors to help foster a fluid and positive story for kids, the same way we might want to inspire people to write stories about themselves and our program. So a quick way to summarize those steps is that when a child's in infancy, no doubt parents are expected to provide just basic care, meet the child's needs as soon as possible, and form a healthy attachment bond with the kids so that they can begin their lives with a sense of safety and security. You're not going to spoil, you know, I have a three-month-old, you're not going to spoil a three-month-old baby. Um, they, they need to be taken care of because they can't otherwise take care of themselves. But even with an infant, there's a certain amount of development that they can do on their own. And parents need to have the humility and decency to be able to let that happen. As kids grow, they, they start learning about the world and other people and concepts with help from us and we should provide them opportunities to do that with the understanding that their actions have consequences. A parent's job is to be available for their children on the one hand while allowing them to challenge themselves and take risks on the other. So adults should, should praise kids for their effort rather than any inherent intelligence they may have. They should help them continue to challenge themselves physically and mentally and spiritually so that they can have successes but also make mistakes and learn from them, uh, with an adult there to help them process events if needed. And that's the kind of thing that turns our kids into flourishing adults who can take care of themselves and who can build a happy, healthy future for themselves. We could talk for days about targeted areas and techniques within this framework, uh, but this is an overall framework for respecting a child's developmental process while helping them form a realistic and optimistic story about what life is and its wonders and its challenges, how to overcome those challenges, and how to make sense of it all in a way that leads to creativity and progress, rather than what we see often, which is boredom and despair.
1: Well, I find it helpful to think about it in terms of the stories. Yep. As, as you said earlier, the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell our children. It, 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 it takes maybe a little bit of digging to realize that we're the child is viewing the world with the help of our eyes and our brains. They're seeing many things for the first time that are surprising or amazing to them. And that helps us to recognize the degree to which we apply a filter or a storytelling narrative to those events. And implicit in those stories are all sorts of values, things that we value, how challenging or scary we think different events are what we think the child's capabilities are and obviously when you talk about developmental stages of course we're highly aware of the ways that their capabilities change and how among other values they attribute responsibility for events Mm. so when you see people behaving or children acting in a certain way and you discuss it with your child or review it with them, you're actually creating an entire value framework. So if two children are squabbling, or if you want your child to be generous in giving away toys, or sharing toys, I should say, if you want your child to be prepared to take ascertainable, manageable risks, these are all inherent. In the stories you talk about and tell about things you see, people you see, children you see. And as we go on, of course, we'll see how this applies to the risks of addictive behavior, drugs, alcohol, and other things.
0: I think that the whole, the entire value system and passing them down, whether tacitly or very consciously through our stories, is exactly half, if not more, of of what is meaningful about the process of rearing a child. The other is trying to create attractive alternatives to behaviors that run antithetical to either our values as parents or perhaps their understanding of what they value as kids as they're trying to develop their own. We have, I think we have locked and loaded a few different stories we could tell about how this works out. I don't know if you'd like to get into speaking about drugs and addiction or if you'd like to stick with uh, talking about kids and development and behaviors in general. Let's start
1: perhaps with kids and development, I think. I mean, for example, if you see a child misbehaving or a child being very, well, he use a technical term, kvetchy, a child sure. who isn't helpful or who's resistant when a parent's trying to just accomplish something, how do you tell, how do you describe that interaction to your own child? How, what, what values you put on it? How do you communicate to them when you see somebody who's not acting in an optimal way? So that's
0: where the job is to flag whatever the difficulty is with communication or whatever the behavior is that was unexpected or unwanted. But actually, I think the best way to go about that is not to say, you did this wrong, do better next time. Rather, it's to begin asking about what that child has experienced in a way that you mentioned earlier, um, steeped in what we call motivational interviewing. In other words, asking questions that allow the child to reflect openly and then reframing or reflecting or listening actively to what they say about their own interpretation of the situation so that they can manage to get ahead on their own. So I might begin by asking a child, I noticed that you are having difficulty doing A, B, or C. What's going on? And I have no intention ever of solving the problem for them. And, and I know going in when I ask that question that what they think is going on may be something that they're seeing and it might seem like a completely different universe than what I'm seeing. And I respect that. Um, along the way, I'm going to ask them what they think the problems are, why they think they're running into a roadblock, what they would rather be doing. And see if we can come to some sort of conclusion about on their own about what they might do instead. the The other part of that is that I like to make sure that they understand why the situation would be difficult for me or for the other party involved, and come to some sort of collaborative conclusion about how we can move forward while all parties involved ha- get something that they want and whether they can live with. But so that the kid can realize that they have their own agency and the strength to get through these situations, if for the time being, uh, having an adult help them through it.
1: You're the father of a three-month-old daughter, and you're a professional who works in conjunction with children in a number of contexts. And the children that you encounter are often brought to you because they, they're having Issues, somebody they've been identified for having problematic behavior. So, you know, going in that something probably has to change. That's what your job, you're a change agent. I I have work in helping people, but not with children, or at least certainly not as often as you do. Uh, I happen to be a parent and a grandparent, on the other hand. And so we can also shift this into a parenting mode. Mm. When you see, when you and your child encounter somebody who's being very, uh, a child who's being confrontational or non-helpful, you can interpret that behavior along with the child. You, at almost the same process that you described, you might say, well, why do you think the child's doing that? And then the child, your child or grandchild or the child you're helping might say, well, they want something. And then you would reflect Yes, but are there other people in this situation? Or what's got to get done in this situation? Or why do you think that child's parent doesn't want to do that right now? To broaden their horizons, mm-hmm. to understand all of the levels of input and factors that are involved in the situation. And you can see that this is an example of a technique of making your child mindful. In this case, making them mindful of situations. But you're also moving towards making them mindful about themselves, who they are and what their capabilities are, which is, I know, something you deal with with children in in professional situations.
0: What you're describing is observing the world around us as rich with opportunities for learning about things that kids may encounter in their lives to narrated and scripted as much as possible, but more importantly, just to notice the ins and outs of what is happening rather than letting life just be something that happens to a person. Often I work with kids who are just consistently living the crisis that their efforts aren't justified, even if they wanted to build something better for themselves, as if they have no one on their team and as if because of some negative experiences they've had or stories they've been told about who they are, every next interaction... Is going to be like the end of the world. And I really believe that some of these kids think that they feel that same feeling as though Armageddon was upon them. And the simple act of fostering a relationship with them and then allowing them to, you know, feel comfortable enough in a space and in different interactions to observe what's happening in those interactions to take on and try on different perspectives what different people may be feeling and thinking in those uh, interactions. And to acknowledge when things go some unexpected way, that that is an interesting thing, something worth inspecting and enjoying and learning from rather than something of a crisis.
1: I think there are two underlying factors, two major dimensions that always crop up in the situations that we're discussing, both parenting and with helping situations. And those are How alarming is the situation they're facing? How dangerous is it? How risky is it? On the one hand, you might call that objective reality. And on the other hand, how capable the child is of dealing with that. And in that latter category, that second category, we include the kinds of things that you encounter very often, but everybody encounters them children who've been diagnosed in some way as having some deficiency in functioning or processing information. So in the first category, you talk about welcoming novelty, not being upset by changes in circumstances, not overstating the threats that we face. Now, obviously, you don't want your small child walking Across the street against the light. So there's a whole category of real threats and balancing that against what we imagine sometimes and overstate to be threats. Hmm. And there's a whole school of thought out there, of course, now about free range children, about what exactly can we allow children to do on their own. And that's just a major category of parenting that you're always negotiating. I live in New York City. At what age is a child allowed to walk around the street on their own? At what age is a child allowed to go on the subway on their own? Those are We don't have an answer to that. We don't have a book of ages for those kinds of things. But I think we're both aware that we often over-insist on the dangers of those situations. We're more fearful about things than they actually are. I was once in a bike store... In Brooklyn, and a nine-year-old girl walked in with a five-year-old boy, and he was getting his scooter repaired. And I happen to know the bicycle repair guy, and he grew up in a pretty rough situation in a housing project. And he and the other people in the bike shop all commented on. We happen to be in a neighborhood called Carroll Gardens, which is very upscale everybody in the room questioned why this girl and boy were allowed to come to the store on his own. And I was just shocked by how much fear pervaded the room. And I I said to the bike guy, Joe, didn't didn't you go run the streets on your own when you were that little? And he said, yes, but, you know, I had a traumatic youth. And then there was another (laughs) woman who had an accent. And I said, "Where are you from, Miss? If you don't mind my asking." She said, "Milan, Italy." And I said, "Isn't it common for children these ages, perhaps, to go to a shop in Italy?" And she said, "Yes, but we're in Brooklyn." And then, you know, what can I say? There's a sense of pervading fear. It turned out that these kids across the street from one block down where their parents live—I would have loved to have met their parents—but it so happens that. For example, New York City now has its lowest murder rate in 2018 in history. Um, in In the early 1980s, there were 2,500 murders a year in New York, and now they're down below 300. So nobody wants to place their child in the risk of being kidnapped or murdered, but these parents thought that walking in broad daylight a block in Carroll Gardens was going to be safe. And, and I would have to say, I thought it would be 100% safe. And everybody, from somebody from another culture where that would be common behavior, and from a guy who grew up on the rough streets of uh, Red Hook, it happens, there was a negative reaction. So, you know, it's not our job to tell people what the objective dangers and situations are. We can't make that judgment for any child or any parent, only to say that we so often overstate these dangers Mm -hmm. in ways that can have consequences down the road for how willing that child is to explore the universe.
0: It'll be worthwhile now to talk about what some of those consequences are. There's an obvious consequence of just being afraid for little or no reason.
1: The two consequences are, Somewhere in life, a child is going to become an adult and have to go out in the world and do things. And that's a sliding scale of when we believe that transition will occur, where they're going to go out on their own, drive, take subways. They're going to have independent relationships. But that has to happen. That has to take place. Actually, there are clinical cases where it doesn't take place. And then we failed completely. But other than that, and we have a a story in a book uh, about a woman who raised her daughter very consciously to avoid having those kinds of fears. As you said, we'll get into these with regards to drugs and alcohol as well. And just what an effort that takes. uh, Self-control and sometimes kinds of public disapproval. And if your child doesn't develop that A a willingness and ability to explore the the world and explore relationships what's the alternative i mean one alternative is that we do observe is that children never go out there's uh the international classification of diseases now has gaming as one category of gaming addiction dysfunction Mm -hmm. and We all kind of know that story. It's commonplace, really, in our time, where the child is so frightened by the prospects of being outside or finds it so unrewarding that they'll just stay inside and do the safe, consistent, persistent thing of playing video games or equivalent electronic devices. And what's the danger there? The danger is the inability to develop an ability to interact with other people, to deal with the outside world, to get exercise, to know how to get around, to negotiate this planet that they're going to have to negotiate. And so that's the downside is in is the lack of experience in exploring the world and the overestimation of the dangers that you're facing.
0: Our kids will face challenges at some point in their lives some extreme, some not so much. And they, we have the choice as parents to raise them with the awareness that challenges are happening to them and allowing them to explore and even take risks in a way that they can face those challenges in bite-sized ways and deal with them and so that we can help them deal with them. Or we can do what we seem to be doing now at a population level anyway, which is try to protect them as much as we can from anything that we perceive as a danger. And I think that is ultimately oppressive and it's really, really harmful as far as I can see for kids in their development. There are children in the schools that I work in and I want to just say that I work in a high school here in South Burlington, Vermont. Um, Nothing I say is about anything that happens in the walls of that school and I don't speak for them, but I do work with kids in the area, in the Vermont area, and I have the benefit of sort of being my own agent out there working with kids. And what I see is... When there is a problem or a kid struggling, adults in the school system are nearly incapable of asking the question, what's going on for the child? Now, everyone will say that they want to do that. Everyone will say they want the child's input and let them speak, let them them know what's going on. But but rarely do I see a, a child experiencing some sort of a challenge or problem in a school system, especially if they've been labeled as somebody who is vulnerable for experiencing those problems. So uh, labeled as someone either addicted or who has some sort of a disability or developmental problem. They don't get to have an uninterrupted thought stream with an adult about what's going on for them in a way that's respected what happens instead is i sit in meetings with specialists in different domains and if there's an area if there's a, a child with a problem let's say who's hurting himself or others well then that's a problem that the teacher says oh that's for the school psychologist to deal with or the school psychologist might say oh that's for this program outside of the school to deal with people point their fingers toward the next thing or service that makes sense for dealing with that sort of a problem without ever interacting with kids.
1: What you have the skill in doing and what we do in the Life Process Program is to avoid labeling as much as possible. Labels are categories that people get to throw kids and others into, themselves into, as a way of avoiding that kind of work that you're describing, the difficulty of like actually it's not difficult talking to them about what they're experiencing and how they have to deal with it. And that's what the Life Process Program, and that's what your work with children is about.
0: Let me just say one thing. Yeah, that's, that's the, the very last thing I was going to say there is we have now, we have two samples, one where we're on high alert that everything that we're seeing in terms of what the behaviors are that the child's exhibiting are a threat and a crisis versus assuming that whatever the child's doing makes sense. In his perspective, and asking him about it. So yes, that's that's exactly what I mean. Is that one one of those ways is we don't assume that we could possibly put a label on him without knowing the information. The other is we're just trying to figure out. We know we're going to label him. We're just trying to figure out which label to put on him.
1: And the, and the two there are two things two key ingredients I see in what you're saying. One is responsibility. And responsibility means who, another way of putting that is that you have the obligation and the ability to deal with something. And what you're describing is that parents and often professionals like teachers <clears throat> feel that they're not the ones who are capable of helping somebody. So in a previous book I wrote, Addiction Proves Your Child, uh, in the high school that my kids went to, there was a group that was organized for kids who were supposedly in recovery. Although you know they were only in high school, and they 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 were a group of kids who were high risk kids. I, I they're just people that come from homes and have troubles that often predict further troubles down the line. And I talked to a shop teacher who worked with one of the kids, and the kid used to come in after school and do extra work in metal and wood shop, and the teacher thought he had a really good relationship with them, but then the kids stopped coming to that extra technical development in order to go to this support group for kids with problems, which was focused entirely on their risk factors and drug use. And the shop teacher was really, he felt, he thought there was something wrong about this. He felt he had a good positive relationship with the child, And then he said, but I guess it's the right thing to do that they should go to this specialist for high-risk kids. And that's a description of the entire process where we deal with people by labeling rather than dealing with the situations they need to face and their capabilities. Uh, What we share in the Life Process Program you do with your work with kids is to avoid the labels, to work on, on engagement with people and work and skills, and to give them an expanded concept of what their capabilities are. We can jump all the way back now to the parenting situation. Mm-hmm. When when you're looking at the world and you're assessing, well, how hard is that to deal with, and what capabilities does my child have? Once again, we don't have a table where we can say what you should let your child do and what's overwhelming to them. But the idea is to be allowing them to see their capacity and their capability and to determine it on their own, uh, to give them the chance for open exploration and to not be quick to panic ourselves and to convey that panic to a child. Two of the experts that we refer to in our book are Carol Tavris and Dr. Dweck, who developed the concept that children do better when they get engaged in activities without adult figures telling them they should or how they're doing in that situation and evaluating it for themselves. And Carol Tavris, I know, spoke to you about the concept that you will fail. Mm -hmm. That is, if you're allowing a child to expand their capacity to experience what the world has to offer, they're going to try things that they're not that good at. Or that they're only developing capacity at, and so they are going to experience failures, and that's not only not bad; it's a necessary and a good thing. And what you're you're educating yourself to control your own anxieties about failure, but mo- most importantly, you're allowing the child to see that failure, failure isn't the end of the world, that engagement and trying things is going to include some instances where you don't measure up, but that you should then persist and continue because that's the only way to develop an area of expertise or skill. And beyond that, it's the only way in many cases to get out of a clinical category. I mean, you can be called shy or fearful. You can be called obsessive. You can be I and mean, something that you encounter all the time is you can be this. They've got clinical categories for disobedience now, but all of those things are, are not, they're not real things that a human being is destined to. They're all things that they're capable of overcoming switch, switching into, I know you'll have a lot of thoughts about that, but switching into the drug area, I just published a piece about the normal development of Lindsay Lohan Lindsay Lohan was a highly successful child actress star, and she got involved in other businesses. She started her own uh, clothing line. But in the meantime, she got involved in alcohol in a really destructive way, spent all kinds of times in rehab, was arrested. and Then she did an unfortunate series with uh, Oprah Winfrey, where Oprah Winfrey got her to admit, well, yes, I'm an addict. And the series, the eight-part series, it didn't make her look very good. Lindsay Lohan is still now only 32 years old. And in the last couple of years, she started a series of nightclubs and beach clubs and greets. And people are sort of waiting for her to do the standard thing of saying, well, I'm an addict in recovery. But she doesn't do that. Instead, she talks about running her businesses. Um, instead, she talks about seeking a spiritual element and exploring different religions. And then there's a new show on um mtv where she's just describing her work with her her beach club Lindsay lohan's beach club and she's just a a successful professional still a work in progress but she never talks about being in recovery or former what might be called alcoholism or what where oprah had her labeled as an addict And, and instead she says i want to leave the past in the past and i want it to be left behind me and for people to see me the way i am now and it's a remarkable thing that, given all of the impediments to developing that self-image, the way she was so early thrust into this world as a child, you think of Drew Barrymore in the same way that she was able to outgrow that to change her whole self-concept. What we're trying to do as parents, as helpers, and in the LPP program, is to have people escape that self-image, or not to develop it ideally in the first place as somebody who's pigeonholed for their entire life by some kind of diagnosis.
0: What all diagnoses and labels have in common is that they discount the amount of effort a person is truly putting in to something in their lives. And it's trying to tell the person how they should allocate their efforts. Instead, what we're saying and what we do in LPP in general and what I do with kids is that we recognize that somewhere that child is putting in effort into something so maybe it's effort in something that's completely a complete fool's errand or hits them with roadblocks. But rather than saying, good job, bad job, you're smart, you're unintelligent, you're this or that, it's you put a lot of effort into A, B, and or C. Noticing the amount of effort someone is putting into something is sometimes the key. Because a lot of times what I see is that kids feel like they're not worth putting in effort into anything and once they realize that they're expending lots of effort but they just might want to channel it in different ways that unlocks a lot for them you're talking about Lindsay Lohan someone who could have eas- could easily now be labeled an addict and decide to put all of her efforts and throw it into uh, staying in uh, quote remission from drinking or doing drugs Instead, she has just developed and followed her interests and developed herself as a person and a human being and wants to be acknowledged as such.
1: There's another kind And of, as you often yeah. see, I know one of the things you do, one of the things we do in the Life Process Program, she already had strong gifts. Right. Everybody knew she had talents. And somehow she got distracted from that. And part of what we're doing in one of the uh, segments of the Life Process Program is reviewing with people their successes Um, and what they're capable of, and their accomplishments, which have gotten shunned aside in favor of them seeing themselves only in negative terms. And I know your experience working with children, you often find that they're they're simultaneously already demonstrating some kinds of skills, which somehow are being ignored, not only in the system, but by the child themselves. And what you're doing is rewarding and, and and fertilizing that interest that's already obviously and evidently there.
0: To stick with that principle can be risky. So I understand the temptation of any adult to want to not only protect their kids, but protect themselves from the wrath of what it could look like with someone with an ideology that things should be one way or the other. <clears throat> We're getting toward the end of time, but I just want to expand this a little bit into Our attitudes and the stories, our attitudes towards drugs, and the stories we tell ourselves, and the stories we tell our kids about drugs, and what it means if a person uses a drug or not. Well, I do something that's risky, but everyone knows I do it. Which is, I teach a class, and it's a civics class, but the class may as well be called "How to Be a Citizen" or "How to Set Goals" or something like that. And one of the topics that I reach is drug facts and. We have an open and serious dialogue about the benefits of given drugs, even illicit drugs, what what the benefits could be to taking them. Why would somebody take a drug like that? What would it look like if somebody were taking that drug to get themselves some sort of experience that they seek in a way that detracts from other areas of life? Versus what would it look like if someone was taking that drug to, to gain something in their lives but, but had other things to fall back on? Versus, what would it look like to be in some sort of situation in which taking that drug would be the absolute wisest alternative? Now, that's a tricky thing to to do among my cohort and my peers at school, but I think it's necessary because we have now two parallel stories: one that if somebody takes a drug, that's it. When we do that, when we talk about drugs as having some inherent um, addicting part of it, you know, chemical that draws us in. What we're doing is uh, allowing them to believe that if they're the kind of person who's already doing a drug or takes drugs, first of all, that they can't be fixed. And second of all, that there's something to fix, Um, rather than trying to give people uh, some realistic points of view that they can determine on their own about what drugs are, what it means, and how they actually apply to their own lives. And I know you have plenty to say about that. Well, we,
1: we can jump back to your stories you tell your children. Yeah. Once again, we're not telling you what drugs you what stories you should tell your child, but you've got to be aware that you're telling them a story. For example, if you come from a family background where alcohol's been a problem, one thing you might choose to do is say, "Well, never drink or alcohol's poison." You could give that message to the child, alcohol's poison to everybody or in our family nobody can drink. And then getting back to the idea that this is a developmental process, Where does that end up? Is your child really never going to drink again from the age of 10, 13, 18, 20 until they're 80? Uh, And it's unlikely that that's going to happen. And so you're giving the message again about the objective world. Well, alcohol does X and then Y being the capability of that individual. Whereas mindfulness is teaching them they have the capacity to deal with something that they're likely to deal with. It's, you're not going to probably escape having consuming alcohol in our society. Um, if you live in, you and I both live in the Northeast part of the country. Virtually everybody has has been exposed to alcohol. We're now confronting that situation, of course. What do we do with the fact that marijuana is basically going to be legal? What story do we tell about marijuana? What do we tell our child about that? And, of course, one area that's highly controversial right now uh, is opioid painkillers. And um, one exercise I do with adults is to go to a room of people and to say, uh, oh, is anybody here taking a painkiller? Of course, everybody's taking a painkiller. Everybody's taking an opioid painkiller. And then I say, well, did any of you become addicted? And in general, if you're in a non-clinical setting, nobody's become addicted. And then I'll say, come on now, I know some of you are really addicted and you're hiding it because that's what people think. Is that true? Be be brave. Come out and express it. But it's unlikely that in a group of normal people, of average people who've not been in clinical, clinically diagnosed, that they've used painkillers when they had pain. And then I say to them, well, why didn't you become addicted to it? Everybody knows that opioids are addictive. And that brings up the two elements that we keep talking about. What's the objective situation? Well, opioids used for pain relief aren't addictive. People go to hospitals and they give them anesthesia when they're experiencing a procedure and then a kind of painkiller afterwards because if they've had their knee replaced or anything, they're in pain. And the almost universal tendency is when the pain ceases to stop taking that painkiller. So that's, what is what does it mean to say that drugs are, have this effect or that opioids are addictive? Right. That's in the objective reality category. And then on the other side of the equation, what does it mean to tell a person, well, you've inherited alcoholism? Uh, Even people who aren't very psychologically oriented recognize the idea of self-fulfilling prophecy, that if you bombard somebody with the idea that they're not capable of dealing with certain substances, especially if they're inevitably going to be exposed to those substances, that you're just setting them up for failure. So I hope people see combining both parenting questions and clinical questions, both with children and adults, in how people come to see both the world around them and their own capacity for dealing with these kinds of experiences. First of all, people,
0: adults, children are more likely to implement a strategy of improvement if they generate it themselves. And so who are we ever to steal from anybody their own accomplishments and ideas that they come up with on their own. What we're also saying is that we have a choice to make about how we integrate our kids and allow them to experience things or not with us. So you were talking about drinking, we might talk about drugs or some other sort of behavior or experience. One of the ways that a child might want to experience things that we consider dangerous in some respects is to go out and experience it on their own. And in many cases, we might want to keep them from doing so. But if we allow them to experience these things in our proximity, they will—they might have failures, and they might—they might find themselves challenged with these things, or they might find that there are negative consequences. But that kind of a risk needs to be weighed against the kind of risk that happens when a child has no social awareness, self-discipline, um, when they're self-conscious. And when they believe what they're doing, when they're experimenting with something, is inherently bad, and then they can't talk with anybody about it. That's a much bigger fall if somebody uh, has a mistake or failure, and that ends. So, uh, I guess what well, we're, one what of we're the trying
1: things to... that we emphasize in the book and in our work is the kind of values and skills that the person has. We believe, I think, we can say both as helpers and as parents, that emphasizing certain values or eliciting values that a child may already, an adult hopefully already has, but inculcating these values in a child. For example, responsibility and obligation. Uh, it's our belief. I mean, Lindsay Lohan now has a payroll to meet. just job to do, and she trains people at the beach club. Those are things that she knows she has to do. And at one point in her life, and she was a responsible child actress, But at one point in her life, she let go of those abilities to fulfill her obligations and lost that sense of responsibility. It seems strange to say, well, what's responsibility got to do with an opioid or alcohol? Those are powerful drugs. But people who realize that they have to fulfill their obligations, that they're capable of fulfilling their obligations, uh, that they have to meet certain kinds of marks, that they have to show up on time – I have a friend who's a trumpet player, and I meet him at the bar, and we have beers, but I'm pretty confident about his drinking. He's almost 60. He's never, ever missed the gig. And when you maintain those kinds of markers that you have to hit in life, when you inculcate those kinds of values in a child, when you encourage them in a school or other setting, you're allowing your... Giving that child the kinds of armor and skill set that allows them not to be submerged by any kind of addictive experience, video games, relationships, sex, and that love, alcohol, and drugs, in favor of leading a purposeful, directed life, which is what we believe is the major antidote not only to addiction, but the major kind of a lodestar for a child to become successful.
0: Perfect. And just to finish uh, my point from just a moment ago, one way to inspire this effort nearly seamlessly is to do so by thinking about a child's life as a story or a series of stories they tell themselves and a perspective that they have, one in which uh, we ought to feel invited to participate in, but which we need to let them lead and, and we help them through. And in that way, when these challenges face them, they're presented in a way that's manageable, that can be worked out, and it doesn't feel like such a shock when, when the challenge happens. Stanton, did you want to uh, add anything before we go?
1: No, I thought that was a great summary. It, it, it circles back. Uh, we're all living a story in our minds of what the world is like and our role in it, and it's a story when a child's young that we're helping them to develop. And that's the theme that we've been talking through, the stories we tell ourselves.
0: One thing that we might discover as we uh, consistently speak our own narratives to ourselves, even in our minds or just experience our own stories, is that sometimes we'll face a situation in which we know we need to uh, get past or get through or achieve. And we seem somewhat stuck. And when we seem stuck, what do we do about that? Well, we'll talk about that next time. On the next episode of the LBP podcast, we'll discuss what it means to take a strengths-based approach to life, utilizing existing strengths and resources and relationships, and how a person can identify their own signature strengths, develop new ones, use those strengths to develop meaningful and addiction-free lives. So we'll talk with you next time.